Hey folks, just wanted to let you know the sound quality this week is not exactly what we would like it to be. Sorry about that. Also, about halfway through, there's a helicopter. I don't know what we can do about it, but just to warn you, sorry about that. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? It was raining in the city. The rain came down like liquid precipitation dropped when clouds become oversaturated with water droplets. The light came in through my office window like photons partially refracted by panes of glass and illuminated the the label on the bottle of bourbon on my desk, which contained words that described the contents of the bottle and the level of alcohol that was contained there. Okay, look, I'm not good at these hard-boiled similes, okay? That's why I'm not a private detective. Everyone knows private detectives have to smoke and drink and use lots of cool similes when they describe things. Well, I don't. My name's Max Levine. I host a podcast. And we're just getting started with our series, Walk the Dark Street, as we dive into the genre of film noir like two big diving things. Damn it! <laughs> Over there... The description's lo- more like film moist. <laughs> Over there, looking like a guy sitting in a chair, is my partner, Mike Luce. Got any cool similes for us, Mike? Because I sure don't. Yeah, don't. That's not a simile, and you know it. No, it's a metaphor. That, but no, bef- it isn't. <laughs> no, it really isn't. A metaphor, a meta- what's a metaphor? It's where cows graze. Oh, oh thank you. I'll be here all day. Um, that's, a, that's a pity. Yes. Well, I, I can't get out of this chair. Tip your cows like you tip your wait staff. <laughs> no, wait, not like what? that. <laughs> tip, only, tip 15 to 20% of the cow? That's not how you tip cows. <laughs> I didn't think so. Do you want to start over? No. <laughs> this was painful enough the first time. I before, know. I'm here. <laughs> but before we get to the true pain of the movie, we have our poll question. Wait, wait, wait. You didn't even tell us what the movie was. <laughs> it's a secret. No, it's not. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm not going to tell anyone. You have to use your detective skills, folks, to figure out what the movie is before the end of the show or this bomb goes off. All I'm going to tell you is that Max is about to get it with the candlestick in the library. Oh, oh, I know this one. Um, Park Place. No, crap. Oh. Uh, uh, the name of the film is... Hum- Hungry Hungry Hippos? No. Oh, fired! <laughs> Do you see what I have to do? 258 episodes of this. Yep, 258 episodes. Maybe we'll reach 259. But, yes, the movie this week is 1973's Robert Altman picture, The Long Goodbye. So get ready for some serious mumbling. But before we get to... We got a poll question. Poll question... Last week we asked you. <laughs> Sorry, stop playing. <laughs> I've been Altmanized. 
Do you want me to just talk in the background? That way nobody can understand a certain thing we say. No, no, we have to talk at the same time. Well, I like this while we're right, going exactly. this way. Like, keep doing, talking about this. Movie, here, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> there, you've experienced a Robert Altman film. <laughs> yep, you never have to watch one. But we asked you last week, what is your favorite film noir? Val Coons, who knows a thing or two about a thing or two about film noir, or at least radio noir, said, wow, wow, this is a tough question. It was hard. (laughs) There are so many that are on my top 25 list. Top 25? Wow. I love to have and have not for its sexual electricity and the strong female lead character, Marie Brown. I love Raymond Chandler's Murder My Sweet. She liked Raymond Chandler murdering her sweet. Okay. It's uh, it's a book. It's a movie. It's a a dessert topping. It's It's, a floor wax. It's my daughter, my sister, my daughter, my sister. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Never going to get through this movie. (laughs) The Big Sleep and the Maltese Falcon for the intricate storylines. Then there's Double Indemnity, considered by many to be the first noir film. So dark and fatal from the beginning, but you have to watch to the end to see just how bad it'll get. Not bad, bad, I'm assuming, but there are many smaller, less-known films that kind of get lost in the shuffle but are worth seeking out. One of my very favorite genres, in case you hadn't already figured that out. We had a hint, yes. Yeah. Tyler Stewart says, Chinatown, I think. Tyler, is there someone there? Can you not speak freely? Cough twice. Watch George, that left nostril. George Saunier? Saunier? Saunier. Saunier. Impossible to say. Well. Good night. <laughs> I can't say anything. The Maltese Falcon of the 1940s is literally flawless. It, is, it even corrected the flaws of the book. That's true. Not <laughs> technically noir by era, but it, well, I think so. The, but, it, but it's the template and final boss by which all others are judged. I'm going to recommend a noir I love with a rare sympathetic female lead. No Man of Her Own from 1950. Hmm. I don't know that one. I don't either. There are a few films with that title. The film stars Barbara Stanwyck, who we see an impression of in this movie, (laughs) in a truly wonderful performance. Also famed stage actress in the 1910s, Jane Cowell, who is subtly heartbreaking. The only Hmm. real flaw are some terrible voiceover, oh dear, but otherwise it shines in the confident directing hands of the underrated Michael Leeson, one of my favorites. Huh. I'm intrigued. Yeah, maybe we should add that to the list. Yeah. Bruce Herr Jr., Sunset Boulevard. Norma's sheer hubris fuels the insane train in wreck that the story develops from. I can't stop watching. Well, we have the most extraordinary coincidence to report. <laughs> See our entire episode last week on Sunset Boulevard. Benjamin Carl says The Big Sleep. Oh, yeah. yeah. That may be coming up. 19. And they're not just talking about Mike's presentation. An amazing, uh-huh. fast-paced, hey! <laughs> amazing, fast-paced, witty dialogue. Definitely not Mike. The repartee keeps you, <laughs> keeps up with you, and you never get bored watching it. Screenplay co-written by William Faulkner. Actually, he sort of, he adapted it for the screen from Raymond mm. Chandler. Yeah, so hard to picture William Faulkner doing screen adaptations, but yeah. he did. Gotta Matthew Eastman says Dark City. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I would not even have thought of that one. That's really good. A science fiction noir. Oh, I haven't seen that in a long time. Maybe we should yeah. add that to the list, too. We should. Adam Mark, our scholars, quote, Last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. 
Oh, wow. Oh, I know that. That line. Crap. I don't... With that infamous and haunting opening line, you are brought into the gothic romance of... Oh, Rebecca, 1940. Oh. Yes. Hitchcock's only Best Picture Oscar winner. It's an amazing rare early entry... Sorry, early entry in the film noir genre, featuring a young Joan Fontaine and a pre-Sir Laurence Olivier. Little tortured phrasing, but nice. Uh, <laughs> the protagonist, an unappreciated unappreciated lady's maid meets a grieving widower in Monte Carlo. They surprise themselves in finding true affection in each other and soon fall in genuine love. Brought to the English family country estate Manderley as his bride, the young woman, always unnamed, oh, I forgot that. I've seen this movie. I didn't remember she doesn't have a name. Finds the household staff and town folk still enamored with the titular character Rebecca de Winter. Uh, who has drowned in a boating accident years before. They all recall Rebecca as perfect, sophisticated, graceful, worldly, in every way the protagonist is perceived as not. The protagonist seeks to win over everyone and to comfort her new husband, who upon returning to the house seems increasingly haunted and mournful for the dead, and always unseen, Rebecca. Nary a flashback or even a picture. It's a masterful cinematic decision, Rebecca exists only in your mind's eye and will refuse to leave. The protagonist has hope she will eventually win over everyone, new relatives, servants, town folks, who she perceives as well-meaning and earnest. But all is not as it seems. What appears to be a melodramatic romance becomes a hard-nosed drama of crime and intrigue, with characters who really surprise you with their choices. I pointedly refuse to spoil this film for your listeners. It contains one of the best cinematic twists ever, surpassed only, and just barely, by The Sixth Sense. Wow. Incredibly hmm. acted and written and masterfully shot by Hitchcock, earning him a Best Cinematography Oscar to boot, this film haunts me to this day. Well, this one may wow. have to go on the list. You, well, you know, now I'm having another thought. What if maybe we should consider extending this series a little mm. bit? Yeah, a couple episodes or so. Because they're yeah. giving us such great suggestions, which, um, spoiler, uh, the last three have not been on our list. Uh, yes, Rebecca is on our list. Oh, is it? Okay. Yes. Yep, but yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to contain this particular genre in just eight episodes. Hmm. No, we'll get hmm. back to that. Yeah. Regan McStravick says Blade Runner. Yeah, see our episode on Blade Runner. Sure, another science fiction noir. Yep. Dave! Dave, 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 Dave. <laughs> who actually posted this on his own feed and then very courteously posted it back on this post. Oh. Obviously, M defines the genre. It's also oh. a great letter, as it is used in all of the important words. Max, Mike, and movies. <laughs> well said, Dave. Brilliantly put. So who can't love the letter M? This whole episode brought to you by the letter M. It is, <laughs> it is dark, gritty, and heavy. The letter M? The Not movie. Sure if, oh, yes. Not sure if it's a favorite, but it's an amazing film and as noir as one can get. And I seem to watch it once a decade. I have never seen this. I keep meaning to. I think it's the, Peter Lorre, isn't it? I think so. A Touch of Evil is also high on my list of real film noir. But I don't often think to myself, gee, I'd like to watch Touch of Evil again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we, we did that one and I get that completely. Yeah. If half... If happy films like To Have and Have Not qualify due to dialogue, femme fatale, and an anti-hero protagonist, sure, then that has to be my favorite, as it is a movie that I just love. 
But I think real noir has to be urban and depressing and have little or no cheer to it. Sadly, he's kind of right. Yeah. If you are looking for Japanese noir, there is, there's Japanese noir? Cool. Yeah. I regularly watch A Cult is My Passport. Oh, wow. What if noir mean? can be in color, which actually presages a question I want to ask, then I would put in a word for the films Tokyo Drifter on our list and also for Yellow Lines, both of which are favorite Japanese films. Oh, and Chinatown. <laughs> Had to get that one in there too, Dave. Very nice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I love those long, thought-out answers. Uh, we have a newcomer, at least to the comments, Dalton McGrath. Oh. I'm going to read his whole his whole email because he actually emailed us. Oh, he used us at Max Mike Movie. Oh, I'm giving he it away. He did. Well done, Dalton. Hi, Max and Mike. Long-time listener, first-time caller here. We love <laughs> to hear this. Uh, I would say my favorite noir movie would be Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Oh. Whoa. The contrast between the dark seedy noir side and the zany cartoon side complement each other perfectly. Dang. I would huh. not have thought of that, but yeah, it, that's kind of what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly spoofing that genre. I yeah, mean, if it, you want to be really pedantic, you could say, well, it has a happy ending, so it can't be noir, but... Yeah, um, but it, it, it's you know, the tale of entire, greed, sex, and murder. I mean, that's... Yeah, that they even say that. Yeah, see our entire episode in Roger Rabbit, and uh, by the way, there's some really gruesome scenes in there. There really are! I mean, just... Uh, the, the scene of the shoe being dissolved still haunts me. Well, how about... Uh, the, the uh, What's his name? The um, Not the mayor. What, the, Christopher... Uh, oh, Judge Doom? Judge Doom, yeah. Ah! His death. I mean, <laughs> if yeah. that didn't cause some nightmares, then they didn't do their work properly. Yep. So. But, uh, thank you, Dalton. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And, of course, from the lands to the far north, as he works in his terrifying genetic experiments with moose and beaver, Vince snow, snow, snow. says, I could list a hundred film noir that I love, but being the polite Canadian he is, he does not. Oh, it sorry. Doesn't do all 100, yep. It grew out of the German expressionism, which is maybe my first favorite style. And, the t and this, Touch of Evil, The Third Man... Pepe Lamoco, which Vince had to remind me is actually a Carol Burnett sketch. Such a <laughs> list. I didn't know. I thought it was, I was, I wrote back and said, wow, I've never heard of Pepe Lamoco. He's going, Max, it's a Carol Burnett sketch. Uh, <laughs> such a list. I have a soft spot for Kubrick's first film, Killer's Kiss. Oh. Oh, I don't know that one at all. There is me this either. tense scene at the end in a mannequin factory that is so creepy. Oh, time to feed the penguins and create a moose-beaver hybrid. <laughs> he's tampering in God's domain, don't you know? <laughs> At least he's doing it in Canada. Yes. Well, thank you all. The uh, Mike, what is your favorite film noir? I mean, if we're being broad enough, I'm going to have to go with Blade Runner. It's one of my absolute favorite films. But it has to be the right cut. It has yeah, to be the yes. quote-unquote director's cut from 1992. Oh, you, you don't love sushi, cold fish. <laughs> no. That's what my... Yeah. <laughs> no, and even even Harrison Ford hated doing that. Uh, there's If you can find some outtakes where he's going, really, really, <laughs> while he's recording it. It's the second okay. best outtakes to Frozen Peas or um, uh, Duke Dickum. He's a dick, he's a duke. <laughs> Look them all up if you don't yep, know. Yep. So, yeah, I'm going to have to go with Blade Runner. I, okay. It has pretty much all of the criteria you need. It just happens to be 
set in a future which is now the past. <laughs> um, it also has some really interesting questions on what is human, what is mm. identity, what does that all mean, which are things that are starting to pop up in the news again, I'm just saying. So I'm going to, I mean, I do love Maltese Falcon. I've watched it many times. I think there's an argument that you could make that Casablanca is certainly edges towards mm. noir. He's got some elements, but I would, no, I, I would argue against that. I wouldn't, it's only because of the happy ending. If well, like, also, like, there's <laughs> patriotism in it. You don't get patriotism in film noir. Yeah, but the patriotism for France. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? But also, I just was picturing the alternate ending to Casablanca where they get on the plane, it flies up, it gets shot down, it crashes, and then Nelson pops up and goes, ha ha! Ah, yes, uh, the director's cut of uh, Casablanca, yeah. But how about you? This was uh, yeah. my question, so yeah. what is your answer to? What's your favorite I gotta go or? with The Big Sleep, the Bogey yeah. and Bacall movie. I, oh, I love that movie so much. If, oddly enough, the thing that always stands out to me it has is it expresses a problem I've always had. I don't like orchids, just the flower. And one of the characters in there, I think he's the colonel or the major. He's only in one scene, but he's in a hot house, and he says, "Yeah, I hate orchids. Their flesh is like the flesh of men." Like, yes, that that's it. You summed it up. That's the if you ever touch an orchid, it's like touching human skin. It's no, it, it's not that it's like the flesh of men. It eats. The flesh of yes, it, uh, it's actually, it likes the flesh of men. Yeah, so, but, yeah, yeah. Who, who doesn't? Uh, <laughs> well, that it, was cool, but yeah, do we have yeah, another question? Uh, yes, but I just do want to say thank you to everybody for those Especially our new person, Dalton. Yes, welcome Dalton. And long-time listener, though. So yeah. We'd, we'd love to hear that. Uh, yeah, these were terrific and gave us a lot more to work with, too. Yeah. But mm. you have done so well. Your next assignment, Mr. Bond, is to die. No, to answer this one. Do you think film noir works better with black and white movies, or does color not make a difference? Yeah, because like this week's movie is a film noir. It's in color. Do you actually, Does it have to be black and white to really be film noir, despite the fact that, you know, noir is right there in the name? We won't and point out that I asked that question during last week's episode, but that's all right. Yes, but you just asked me, and I only want to ask other people. <laughs> That was my mistake. <laughs> exactly. Let's ask people who matter. You matter, Max. Kind of. <laughs> and we will tell you at the end of the show how to answer this question, or we'll make you figure it out yourself in Marlowe-esque fashion. No, we but That won't. involves a lot of smoking, so maybe don't do that. Oh, yeah, there is a lot of that. Yes, there is. But now, trivia. The facts. First off. Let me reiterate what Mike tells you at the very beginning of the show. There are going to be a lot of spoilers. Not, not so much in the trivia, but in, in our discussion. Because there's no way to talk about this movie without talking about the ending. And about a bunch of other stuff that happens in it. So be warned. I mean, really, if you haven't seen the movie, go see it now. You done? Good. We're still here. <laughs> this is a short movie. Yeah. But Robert Altman, by the way, you may have noticed, has decided the camera should never stop moving. And put it on a dolly. Yeah, the camera movements sort of counter the actions of the character, so the audience is supposed to feel like a voyeur. But you know what? It didn't. I didn't notice it. And yeah. this is not like what was that horrible film we saw recently? Where the was it? Um, Deep Impact. Yeah, the ah, film. Yes, the the camera impact. just never stops swinging around, and it's just yep. that was 
bad. This is how this, you use. Yeah, watch Altman. He knows how to use a, do- a camera dolly. Yeah, we'll be coming back to the cinematography. Yep. Elliot Gould has said, as he is the star of the movie, by the way, he plays Philip Marlowe, which admittedly, not my first choice. I wouldn't have thought, you know who I want for Philip Marlowe? The guy from MASH, Elliot Gould. I want want a tall Jew, that's what I want. Yeah, that's right, because (laughs) Philip Marlowe sounds to me like a tall, skinny Jew. Yeah. Uh, He said that as long as he is physically able, he holds out hopes that he could reprise the role of Philip Marlowe. He has a screenplay entitled It's Always Now, which is based on Raymond Chandler's story, The Curtain. The Chandler estate sold him the rights to the story for a dollar. Oh. Yeah. And he hasn't been able to get anybody to make it? Apparently not. Huh. Now, this movie was a big deal for Elliot Gould. He had not worked for two years before this. He had just hit his stride. He had just been in MASH, which made him a superstar, but apparently... He was kind of on the outs with the industry because of his erratic behavior on the set of a movie called A Glimpse of Tiger, which is, of course, one of Mike's favorite movies. Uh, Don't think I've ever heard of it. Yes, you have. It's just you know it by a different title. What's up, Doc? Oh! (laughs) Yeah. This was now, Glimpse of Tiger was a very different movie and a different script, but they retooled it into What's Up, Doc? Good thing. Yeah, but apparently he was just, he couldn't handle the sudden success. I wouldn't want to say, but it's possible a little, a few drugs may have been involved, possibly a little of the drinky drinky. <laughs> but uh, Drinky drinky. That's uh, a noir term you may not have never heard before. Yeah. Shut down, shut down, sweetheart. Have a drinky drinky. <laughs> It's like British noir. Bo- Bogey <laughs> says that a lot. Um, I'm Detective Tittles. <laughs> But uh, Altman insisted on casting Gould, and this was basically a comeback for him. Huh. The music in this movie is very interesting. Yeah. Except for the song Hooray for Hollywood, which opens and closes the movie, all the music in this movie is one song. Yeah. It's the theme song, The Long Goodbye, which is written by Johnny Mercer... Who also wrote Hooray for Hollywood, and this kid that they gave a job to, Johnny Wilhelms, Willings, <laughs> John hey, Williams. He's not Johnny in this. He's just John. He's yeah. trying to break away from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this was face. by Johnny Mercer, who was songwriting royalty. And uh, the title song shows up in various guises in the film, including on the radio as a dirge played at a funeral by a Mexican marching band, and even as the first few notes of the Wade's doorbell. Yeah. Everything. We'll come back to that. Sterling Hayden, who plays Roger Wade, the Hemingway-esque writer, uh, wrote all his own scenes, and he improvised a lot of his dialogue. Okay. Marlowe always wears a tie with American flags on it. You can't see this, though, in the movie. It looks plain red because the cinematographer, and I'm going to get their name wrong, Vilmos Zygmunt's post-flashing techniques. Uh, Gould also smokes in every single scene. Sometimes more than once. <laughs> yeah. Constantly smoking. The film is dedicated, in the closing credits, the film's dedicated to Dan Blocker. If you don't know, that's Hoss Cartwright. Ah, uh. It states, you know, with special remembrance for Dan Blocker, Altman 
and I didn't know this, he directed a lot of the early episodes of Bonanza. Oh. Yeah, which is why, you know, they're always mumbling. <laughs> he, <laughs> he hey, Ed, how come I'm older than you? Gee, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, he had originally cast Dan Blocker in the role of Roger Wade, because he was another big, imposing figure, but he died before filming commenced. Oh. The opening scene with Philip Marlowe and his cat, where he's faking... He's actually can't find the cat food brand that the cat likes, so he buys a different one, swaps the label, and tries to fool the cat. And oh, fails. he doesn't swap the label. He actually goes and finds an empty can in the garbage oh, right. and scoops it from one can to another, puts the <laughs> lid back on, and then lets the cat in because he's afraid yeah. the cat has seen what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this uh, came from a real story of Robert Altman's friend. Uh, who, who told him about a cat that only ate one type of cat food, and he sees it as a comment on friendship, which kind of does, is a kind of theme in this. To compensate for the harsh light of Southern California, Robert Altman gave the film a sort of soft pastel look, reminiscent of old postcards in the 1940s. That's why it kind of looks sort of washed out. Hmm. In the short documentary, Rip Van Marlowe, there was a deleted scene referred to. There's only a still of it. It wasn't filmed. With uh, Robert Altman, Elliot Gould, and Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen was apparently supposed to have had a cameo as Sam Spade going up in an elevator with Marlowe. Oh, I that think that's a good weird. thing. That, yeah, I think that's a good thing they left that out. Yeah. There are not one but two future superstars who make uncredited cameos in this movie. I know one of them. Yeah, in that one of them is... Especially when Gould is saying he's going to yell, he's going to tell the governor about the cops. Well, a future governor is there with him in a room. Arnold Schwarzenegger himself is one of uh, Augustine's thugs. Yeah, we'll come back to him. Yes, big swollen fellow, has no dialogue. This is, by the way, he does, he looks like he's been pumped full of air. This is his second film appearance ever after Hercules in New York, which was dubbed, by the way. He played New York, right? Yes. But did you catch the other superstar? No, I did not. The other superstar, and this is his first appearance in film, was Morris the Cat. Okay, you know, that it is actually Elliot occurred Gould's to me. Cat. I wondered. Yep. <laughs> this was his first finicky routine. It is his first film appearance ever. And then he Ooh. went on to take the world by storm, get hooked on catnip, and do a behind-the-music video. Oh, nine no. lies. Oh. <laughs> I, I want to say that the original voice was Robert Wagner, but I'm not sure if that's true. I can't. I don't know. It, to me, it was the cat. As far as yeah. I'm concerned, the cat was talking. The screenwriter, Lee Brackett, who adapted the Chandler book, had real problems with its plot, which he felt was riddled with cliches and faced the choice of either making it a period piece or updating it. She clearly updated it. She also changed the ending, which Altman not only loved that the new ending so much he put it in his contract that if he if he did the film they couldn't change the ending she had written oh both Brackett and Altman point out that you know Sterling Hayden and Elliot Gould's dialogue during the drinking scenes was improvised that's because Hayden was drunk and stoned most of the time well he's just in character yeah yeah <laughs> apparently Sterling Hayden in addition to the drinky drinky also enjoyed a little of the weedly deedly <laughs> Meanwhile, back in Britain. Everything's <laughs> <laughs> so cute right. over there. <laughs> Lashings of ginger beer for everyone. There's a lot of other stuff, but uh, I didn't stop there. 
Yes, but would, I would hope that you would tell us the dark, dark story. Oh, yes. Not using any of your noir terminology. Oh, like drinky, drinky. <laughs> <laughs> but how many? I'm going to need to get a drinky, drinky to get through this. Yeah, we're going to have a murder poo, okay? So. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Marlowe is your basic private dick in the City of Angels who mostly seemed concerned with getting his finicky cat the right kind of cat food and living next door to a commune of naked hippie chicks. Like you do. Could be worse. One night around 3 a.m., an old friend, Terry Lennox, shows up and asks Marlowe to drive him to Mexico, no questions asked. And thus, with a simple act of friendship, Marlowe ends up being detained by the police for three days, threatened by a psychotic Jewish gangster, and investigating the missing Hemingway-esque husband of a beautiful woman living in Malibu with a security guard who does bad movie star impressions, and an incredibly creepy doctor who runs a sanatorium. Marlowe spends a lot of his time baffled by what's happening around him, but as always the answer is tobacco, and his constant smoking combined with some actual detecting skill lets him put together all the pieces to form a very disquieting picture that ends in a rather surprising confrontation. Sadly, we never see Marlowe's cat again. The film. Yep, honestly, my first line of my notes is, Kitty, time for Din Din. Oh, my, it's my third note, but it's cats make every movie better. They do. The cat doesn't even get a name. Nope. It's just it's my, my cat. cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say that that scene of him going out to the supermarket <laughs> at 2 a.m. and the lengths to which he tries to, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. fool the cat, thinking, well, they use their sight more than yep. they use their smell or their taste, so <laughs> the cat won't. Yeah, he basically just tries to pull one over on the cat, and the cat literally leaves the film. <laughs> it just he try- he out tries to make cat food for the cat. He, like, mixes something up, and the cat literally pushes it onto the floor. <laughs> well, at that point, it was a thing on top of another thing and that <laughs> breaks cat law yeah so. and it, but again i can see what what uh, altman meant because in a way that's sort of the essence of this movie marlo is trying to help out a friend and all it does is backfire on him yeah and i suppose that the friend does leave although in this mm-hmm. case he drives him to mexico or at least the border so sort of i didn't see that really that symbology so heavily but yeah. i did think it was a hell of a funny f- opening scene because it was just like really a i'm sitting there going well it's not going to work mm-hmm. and b that the fact that he thinks it's going to work and then see that the cat literally sad. walks out of the movie and never comes back the thing i left out of the plot recap is when he drives his friend terry to uh, mexico a few days later he gets it turns out a terry's wife has been murdered and he's the chief the prime suspect and then Terry is reported having committed suicide down in Mexico. Yeah. Also, it turns out the LAPD can just lock you up for three days for no reason. I have no trouble believing that, by the way. I was going to say, you really? That's, yeah. It was also fairly obvious that they knew who he was and that he'd mm-hmm. probably had dealings with him before, because that's what private eyes do. Yep. So I had no, I didn't have any issue with that, too. Um, do we want to start with the cast? It's not going to take yeah. long, because no. quite honestly... I'm, most well, it's an Altman film, so there's a lot of people, but most of them aren't very noteworthy because they don't have a lot to do, or I've never heard of them. They aren't around a lot, yeah. So Where do you want to start? Let's start with Elliot Gould. Not who I would have picked for uh, Philip Marlowe. No, but he, I think he pulls it off. He's a very '70s kind of detective. 
I was surprised. I'm not generally a fan of Elliot Gould because there's something sort of acty about him. Like he oh. always feels a little bit like he's playing a part to me. And oh, I was I not expecting him. he can be funny, but like, and actually, I do like him in Ocean's Eleven. But mm -hmm. there's still something acty about him. There's something yeah, to he's me. Terrific and Mash. He's on. He's in like five different films with Robert Altman. Well, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll talk about Altman too. Mm -hmm. But here. I think the only thing that hampers his performance, and there's a point where he actually is fairly wooden, is the overdubbing. And this is a common problem in uh. 70s film. Most of the dialogue is looped or recorded later. And you can't match their performance because all, you're in a booth, for one thing. You're often alone. Yeah. And it's nothing like what you're doing at the time. And it, unfortunately, really hurts the performances. Because the times when he's not dubbed, I think he's doing a really good job. And I was surprised. I didn't mm -hmm. think he had that kind of character in him. But, yeah, yeah I, 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 I think he does I mean, great. Especially for adapting it for the 70s. Because when it first started, they're playing Ray for Hollywood. It's like, oh, is it going to be like in the 40s? Or are we doing a paper moon or something? I'm still or not sure why they chose that song. I mean, apart from the fact it's another Johnny Mercer song, I, or that they're like trying to pay tri pay tribute to the fact that uh, it's a it's in effect a nineteen forties type of movie being done in the seventies. By well, the way, so is his car. You notice that his car was yeah. in the forties. Well, but yeah, but the song is all about how nothing's real, right? Yeah, and all no, you need true. is a little makeup and stuff, and you can be something that you're not. Just need a good so, looking pan, yeah. And it's, I'm guessing it's harkening back to the time when the story was actually written. That's my guess. Because, yeah. as we'll talk about, Altman is not exactly short on using symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> so, who next? Yeah, what about uh, Sterling Hayden, Roger Wade, the I'm not Ernest Hemingway writer? <laughs> I mean... Even the, the beard, thing, man. <laughs> the only thing they were missing were a bunch of cats, because yeah. uh, he was known for having a lot of cats in his, his little house there down in Key West. But, um, but I, I don't know how you could think he wasn't Hemingway, because he was. Yeah. You know, the drinking, the later career, the you know thoughts of suicide. or The cross-dressing. Huh? Yeah, well, <laughs> Wasn't well, there a, hope, weren't there rumors that Hemingway was gay? I can't remember. I don't remember if he was gay, but he did apparently like to wear women's clothes. Oh, and I bet he looked great in them. Um, he's pretty much exactly what you'd expect. I don't know yeah, anything about that I think, actor. I think he does a great job. The only thing I can tell you right off... Well, first off, we've seen him in The Godfather. He was the poli the corrupt police captain. Okay. Who breaks Michael's jaw. And if you've seen Dr. Strangelove, he's General Jack Ripper, the guy who goes crazy and launches the nuclear attack on Russia. Ah, okay. You know, it's Drake. been a long time. Have, have you ever heard of Floridation Mandrake? Okay. He's, a, he's great at that. I think he, he just nails it. I think he's perfect at this. And I, I think even all the improv and the, the randomness of some of the dialogue really works. He's fine. I think there's a couple of points where it, it's like, now that you tell me he was actually drunk on set, it's like, okay, that's why he mumbles and stumbles his way off set. It's, yeah. But it felt like it had been improv, so I kind of wasn't surprised. And what about the one female main character? Uh, Eileen Wade, played by uh, Nina Van Pallant. I think she does a great job because I never know where she's coming from. And yeah. as we'll see in this film, you're not meant to know what's going on. We're sort of in the position of Philip Marlowe, but it's a very twisty plot. And we have no idea. I'm going to say I had no idea she had any part of it. But apparently yeah. she kind of does. We'll get back to that. So I don't know her from anything else, but I think she did fine. 
Yeah. And what about uh, Rydell? I think his name's uh, David Rydell, who plays uh, Ma- uh, Marty Augustine. He's really odd. He's Interesting. Fu- he's freaking terrifying. Yeah. Um, the things he does, there's one very brutal scene that Oof. I felt something was going to happen, but I didn't think it was going to be that. Mm-hmm. And although the blood effects in this film are, let's face it, pretty terrible, yeah, the brutality and suddenness of what he does... Is and the very madness shocking. of it. Like, yeah. This is what I do to someone I love. You I don't even like. Yeah. Except, well, we'll come back to that. I, he does He does fine. He's really interesting. And then things really start to taper off, except for one very odd casting choice. Are you talking about Henry Gibson? Yes. Henry uh-huh. Gibson is known as a comedic actor. Um, mm-hmm. I... F- I think his first major appearance that I saw was on a Dick Van Dyke show episode where he reads these little poems that he was known for, these funny little humorous poems. He was also on Laugh-In. Mm-hmm. I think there was one point he was, quote-unquote, running for president on Laugh-In. I think that was that, that was Pat Paulson. Oh, the, you're right, Pat Paulson. But he's generally this little unassuming comedic actor with, I have to admit, one of the worst comb-overs in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> But he's really sinister in he's this. He's so creepy in this and just kind of scary. Watching him, and Henry Gibson is what, three feet tall or something? <laughs> Watching him slap Sterling Hayden, who is, I don't know if he's six foot five like the character. He's not. But he's over six feet tall and big. And watching Henry Gibson physically dominate him in that moment is really disturbing. Yeah. Not what I would expect from out of out of Henry Gibson, and no. he is surprisingly good at being sinister. Yeah, I, we're kind of that's, at the end. The uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's the security guard who does the bad movie impressions. I don't even know who that was. I don't know. I don't care. I actually think he does a pretty good Walter Brennan, but the he rest did a good Walter Brennan. <laughs> but the rest of them is like, oh, thank you for telling me who it is. Yeah, otherwise like, I wouldn't that's know. That's supposed to be Jimmy Stewart and yeah, Barbara, Barbara Stanwyck. I yeah. mean, credit for trying Barbara Stanwyck, but yeah. It's it's an Altman cast. Altman doesn't. He tends to focus a little bit more on one or two people, but there tends to be lots and lots in there. And I'm not sure if it's Altman because it's fairly early in his career. Couldn't necessarily get bigger names, or he didn't want them. He may not have. He may not have. I think he, yeah. This so. feels very kind of grounded, very yeah. earthy. Well, we start off with an old timey opening. We get the uh, hooray for Hollywood. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, speaking of spoilers and giving things away, I happen to notice the movie poster and the tagline. Um, if you've seen the film, I suppose it sort of doesn't give things away, but the tagline is, nothing says goodbye like a bullet. Uh-huh. Which kind of is well, the ending, which we'll get to. Um, interesting yeah, to put that up there. but that's also kind of hard-boiled detective sort of thing. Yeah. I, I still like the other one. The other tagline for that movie was, I have two friends. One is a cat and the other is a murderer. Okay. Or is not, he? Not No reason the cat couldn't also be a murderer, but... Well, I, it's going to have to be since it's not going to get its favorite cat food. <laughs> yep. Did you see who um, distributed this film? It was a real surprise to me. No, it was United Artists, wasn't it? No. It huh. was Lionsgate. Oh, God. It's like they were that. around in 73? Apparently. Yeah, I was like, that was surprising. Very surprising. Hmm. Uh, let's get a, a quick uh, 
if we can, quick talk about Mr. Altman. His big film, his big introductory film was MASH, uh, a mm-hmm. film that it turned out a lot of people turned down, which you, which you mentioned. Yeah. Um, after that, he did a film called Brewster McCloud I never heard of. That heard then, of it. No, never saw it. Don't know anyone who saw it. And then a fairly big Western called the McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh, yeah. Which is, I think, a John Wayne film. I think Images, so. which, I've, which I've never heard of. And then he did this. And Altman... I went looking through his credits. Altman has done a lot more films than I thought. I've seen oh, a few of them, and I done really... A ton. He has. And some... I'm going to say these are the films that I think are probably his best. I, I don't want to give away whether we think this one is or not. But mm-hmm. The Player... Excellent oh, yeah. film. Yep. Mash, Shortcuts, yep. which I really like, and Gosford Park, which is a film I think people forget because it's a murder mystery. It's a British murder mystery. But there's and, a lot of mumbling. Well, they're in, in various dialects, right? So we yes. have Irish and Scottish, Scottish. and Fake Mary McKeithen. Um, at some, did we do Gosford Park? I can't remember. I don't think we have. We, at some point, we should. I really like that film because not only is it a really nothing more than a cozy, a British murder in the countryside mystery, it's got some really great plot twists in it. And out of nowhere, Stephen Fry comes in and is the <laughs> worst detective ever. Oh, he's, he's terrific. But also, this is like full of English acting royalty. You've got yeah. like two dames, a couple of sirs. Yeah. And this really was the precursor to Downton Abbey because Julian yeah. Fellows, who wrote that, basically said, you know, I've got an idea for a smashing show. And <laughs> off went Wizard. Downton Abbey. And he brought uh, um, Maggie Smith with him. Yep. So... I, he tends to do these big ensemble casts. Later on, not in this particular film, but later on, he also will be known for having multiple plot lines running through things. Mm-hmm. So you have to really pay attention to what's going on. And I, he tends to favor more naturalistic situations in acting, except for Gosford Park. Yeah, that's one of the reasons. It's actually kind of a problem with listening to his dialogue is he really likes people to sound natural. And he mm. likes to record it that way, which often makes it just hard to understand. Yeah. I, I, I often have to watch his movies with subtitles. I watched it with headphones, and it was nah, actually was fine. Not. But to be fair, there are a lot of points where people are talking over each other, but not as much as they would be in later films. So, and he, something else that he does that's really interesting is he does not waste space on the screen. There is often stuff going on in the background, and sometimes with reflections. That is a commentary on what's going on. And he really, he uses the camera better than so many directors, even to this day, I think. Yeah, yeah. he is an artist with the camera. He is a very visual director. He's really good at that. And he's not in your face about it. It's the kind of stuff that you don't really realize you're noticing until later. Yeah. And it makes you think, and I think he's he's distracting you in a way. He's actually, this is one scene in particular where Marla's out on the beach. He's been asked to go take a walk, walk and look at the surf while the Wades have a discussion. And you can see them, but you're, I, for me anyway, I was listening to them and watching Marlo and trying to you figure out what... You can see his reflection in the window. Yeah. And you can see him, like, running away from the water because yeah, he's out was, there in a suit and shoes. It was really interesting. He was very experimental in that respect, but not so much that I think it alienates the audience. I yeah, don't it, think anyway. Again, it's not in your face. It's more, much more subtle. 
Uh, I also, I like the way that, that Marlowe is characterized in this. He's, in a lot of ways, he's a hard-boiled detective. In a lot of ways, he isn't. I like the characterization. Everybody talks to him, and most people like him automatically. And he remembers people. I like the little things like when he's in the cell, and he's listening to this obvious lunatic raving above him, and he's actually paying attention to what the guy's saying. And when he leaves, he's not like, yeah, screw you. He's like, remember, only your body's trapped in here, man. He's like, he knows how to talk to the guy. Well, well how about I the guy in the really, supermarket? The guy in the supermarket who he's like, it's the guy making the joke, do you have a cat? No, man, I don't need a cat. I've got a girl. And then he sees he's been arrested. And he's like, hey, they got you too? Yeah. Yeah, what'd you do? Well, my my girl my girl got busted for protesting and I beat up the pig who had busted her. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. He definitely is and he has to be at least somewhat successful because that's a pretty cool apartment he lives in. Well, not according to Marty, who's just bad mouthing so keeps calling him cheapy, which is I, I don't know mean. They, they've got he's got almost a private elevator, an outside private elevator. I think it's a pretty cool apartment. Yes. I'd live he has there. On site naked girls. I mean Which all right. That's a come on, that's very much Altman had a thing about hippies. They usually tend up tend to be kind of comic figures or bad guys in a lot in some of his seventies movies. It's it's not that they're hippies. It's the way he treats women in this film, which is generally mm-hmm. not very well. So they're literally there just to show off their breasts. That's mm-hmm. they they serve no they, other purpose. No, no, they are also there to show that you know they like Marlowe. He's you know he does, and it's it's also to show that Marlowe does favors for people. You know he's going out at three in the morning to get uh, cat food, and they say, could you know could you pick up some brownie mix? And he just does. He just buys them some brownie mix. Doesn't take money for it. I think it's again to show what kind of a person he is. We have no idea who they are. They don't get names. We don't, we find out they run a candle store. That's about it. Yeah, candles. They're they're yeah. lighting up something. Yeah, yeah. But then there's like I mean, basically, if there's a chance to see a naked woman, he throws it in. We have one major woman character at all, and she's mm-hmm. her role is not exactly pleasant as it turns out also she's fairly passive in it you get the feeling none of this none of the plot that she is mixed up in was her idea well and there's still even there's questions in the end of how much she knew and how much she didn't know and what was coming and what wasn't coming but in general i just didn't feel that he was being particularly kind to women in general so and just having naked women there to have naked women is just like, come on, really? But it is the 70s, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to excuse also, it, but I'm going to no. say it is. It, he's not the only one doing it. No, I'm not going to condemn it either because it also becomes a plot point. It's how he distracts Harry the gangster. His escape I, from his apartment yeah. was brilliant. I actually I, loved it. It was so quick and yep. so Very clever. didn't see it coming. Yeah. Yep. I also like the way he deals with Harry, you know. You know, Harry... I'm proud to have you following me. <laughs> well, here's the address in case you lose me. Yeah, in case you lose me. And when he's there, it's like, Harry, what are you doing? You don't you don't follow this close. Here, button up your clothes and get back in the car. <laughs> yeah, I'm not supposed to see you. <laughs> but he's also he's manipulating the guy following yeah. him. And let's face it, everyone who works for, you know, the big bad gangster, Marty Augustine, is easily manipulatable, which is necessary. Although I gotta yeah. say, um, Marty's an equal opportunity employer. He's got oh, yeah. a Hispanic guy, he's got a, yeah. he's Jewish, he's yep, got, got an Italian guy, he's got, got an Irish guy, yep. Which was really 
weird, but Yes, he's got humorous. very good diversity on his team. Well done, oh. Marty. And then later he has a German guy, and I don't know if oh, you yes. caught it. Arnold, um, let's say, okay, Arnold hasn't had acting lessons yet. Because no. at one point, there's this weird scene where Marty wants everyone to strip so that Marlo can apologize. Because if you're, you're naked, then it's sincere, whatever. Yeah. And he did this to the girlfriend that he mutilated, which is horrible. Mm. And Arnold's getting undressed, and there's Arnold in his underwear. And at one point, Arnold looks straight at the camera. Yep, I did see that. <laughs> he, he had, well, the guy had no screen experience at this point. No, he does have a mustache, though. Oh, is Which, that what it was? I thought he'd been drinking chocolate milk before. <laughs> it wasn't even something. chocolate. It was more like yeah. strawberry. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's there's Arnold. Yeah, that was a weird character. but And I will have to say there's a scene with him that I didn't understand why Marlo did. And that's it. later in the film. He goes back to Augustine to say, yeah, I still don't have your money. And I'm like, why did you do that? Oh, no. He says he didn't choose to do that. They brought him. He said, I didn't really have a choice. Oh, I didn't get the impression they, they, they brought he him but he explicitly okay. says that yeah it's a throwaway line yeah he, I, he it, didn't want to go there i wish it had been a little clearer especially not carrying the five thousand dollar bill that uh, apparently Mar that uh, terry sent him that was apparently from augustine's money so that's the whole thing is terry ran off with three hundred and fifty five thousand dollars of augustine's money right and by the way, yes, there is such a thing as a $5,000 bill, and yes, James Madison is on it. Well, there was a 5 and a 10, but they were only meant for bank for transfers. For bank transfers, yeah. Yeah, so the there. fact that there was any out in, in circulation is a pretty big deal. Yeah. There's... Initially, it feels very much like your average noir plot. Oh, here's my friend. He wants to get out of town. He's got scratches on his face, which means he's Alt Kirk, not Loogie Kirk. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> he's, that's, a, he's got that, bruises on his on his knuckles. That was yeah, so we see this and we're like, oh, something bad happened. He yeah. shows up. He wants to get out of town. We assume, because we know he's got a wife because they're talking, and they're old, old friends, that he's probably killed his wife. And he goes to... Mexico. And the next thing we know, the cops show up and say, hey, where's your friend? He killed his wife. And Marlo's like, no, he, he would never have done that. And we assume, as these things usually go, that there's going to be this big twist and we're going to find out who really did it. I don't know, but have you seen this before? Yes. Okay. I, I don't know if you remember from your first time, I was starting to lean towards Eileen because she was mm. the only other major character. But yeah, it's like... A connection with everybody. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I no, the, the plot twist threw me the first time I saw it. It was it was pretty surprising for me. Yeah, and spoiler. Yeah, big spoiler. Marlowe figures out what must have happened by pretty much process of elimination because he didn't know there was any money involved. Once the money mm -hmm. comes into it, now things are starting to make a little bit more sense. And he does initially. Money. Yeah, he initially goes down to Mexico to talk to the coroner because apparently you know this guy, his friend, uh, committed suicide, Terry. Mm -hmm. And he's like, really, really, really? And he's like, all right, well, here's the photos. There he is dead. I guess, you know, that must be the way it is. And when he talks to Marty, it seems mm -hmm. like, look, the guy killed himself. What do you want me to do? I don't know what happened. There's no other. We've, I, don't, I didn't remember seeing two suitcases because it was that such a either. tiny detail. It's exactly the way you would encounter it. Do you, when you saw your friend last, did they have two suitcases? Uh, mm -hmm. How would I, I know? know. Yeah. And so you're waiting for like, all right, who really did it? Big, big, big spoiler. It turns out that um, he's not guilty by reason of having committed the crime. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Terry is the is the master criminal. He did kill his wife. Yep. Uh, he took the money and he faked his suicide so no one would come after him. Yeah. And it's only at the very end that it's, and I think it's literally process of elimination. He's like, well, I, we see Roger Wade commits suicide, which quite honestly, we kind of are waiting for that to happen. We know that Dylene didn't kill him. We know that there was an affair between Roger and um, Terry's wife. We don't, we assume Eileen knew about it. I, that's why I thought, well, maybe she killed her, but finally there's nobody left because she sells the the apartment and, and leaves town and then when he's seeing marty there's a knock on the door who is it oh it's the uh, plot device it's here for you the money shows up out of yeah, nowhere. that part i still don't understand why did the money show up why she did, brought it te- why terry Be- had gotten away with it he could have oh no that's right he she- wanted to give it back because he knew augustine would never give up well and she liked marlo maybe uh, I still think it's just with, once he got his money back, uh, Terry knew that Augustine would leave him alone. He wouldn't care whether he was alive or not. And that could be it, too, because as it turns out, Eileen was having an affair with Terry, and she ends yeah. up going to Mexico. That's the other question I don't understand. At, one, at the end, when Marlo confronts him, because he goes down to Mexico, he finds him through by bribing the uh, police commandant and the coroner. <laughs> Well, with the five thousand dollar bill, but he doesn't because they give it back. Like he can't spend are, that bill. Really he tries to give it away twice, and nobody will take it. Oh, they take. Oh, I'm absolutely positive they take it. I mean, the way they're talking. Yeah, James except Madison, we see them push it back. Is, we see yeah, them push they, it back. Don't. Yeah, but it stays on the seat. The way I'm we see sure it, they take it. When he says it's charity, I think I think they take it, but. He's, Terry says, I've now got more money than Wade or Augustine. How? What He sent back $350,000. Where well, does he get his money? Eileen. Oh, okay. Because he was a very said, successful writer. Look at their house. They're in Malibu yeah. right on the beach. But he says, I have more money than Wade did. And I'm going to well, because he's got her money and he's got the $350,000. But he doesn't. He gave it back. Or, well, she, or do you think he doesn't does, know? I don't think he knows. Oh, okay. Because he probably has the physical $350,000, and she just took the money from her and Wade's cash pile or from the sale of the house and gave oh, it to... Oh, you think so? That's, yeah, right, I that's making a lot of assumptions. I didn't think that. Okay. Well, you're assuming they took the 5000 so I can assume this. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what makes sense because Terry, I don't think Terry would have let go of the money. Because let's face it, Terry yeah. has proven that he's kind of shallow what little we know about him. Oh, and he's incredibly selfish. What is that That line? It's just kind of heartbreaking. Marlo just says very matter-of-factly, so you used me. And and Terry says, hey, man, what are friends for? Yeah. Like, jeez. I think there's also, I mean, I know we're, we're running out of time. There's some really interesting symbolism that I don't think was planned. Like when we go to Mexico for the last time, there's a shot of two dogs. Um, um, yeah, yes. Oh, that's, I'm sure that's planned because he friggin' zooms in on it. I don't know if, well, let's put it this way. I don't know if it was planned, but it was definitely meant. We're meant yeah. to see Someone's sex is screwed. the, yes. And also sex as a motivator in this film may have a very high priority. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of things in the background. Like when you're watching the action, there's almost always something going on in the background. At one point we're in the house that's being sold and the people who are 
packing stuff away, find a little bottle of scotch and like, well, that'll go in my box. And just, <laughs> just, I think he's trying to comment on humanity at every turn and not just mm-hmm. through the characters. And it's actually pretty interesting. There's also that strange bit he's been trying to talk to Eileen. He gets hit by a car. He ends up in the hospital. They put him in the same room as this guy who's practically mummified. And when he's leaving, the guy gives him a mini harmonica and insists he takes it. I initially thought, is that going to end up being Terry somehow? Because you it, it, you feel like it's going to have all these twists. And again, spoiler, I think that's one of the things that's cool about this film is you're expecting this twist, you're expecting a twist, and in a way, there isn't any. No. I mean, sort of at the end, but it's like, it's not really a twist because you get there a lot with Marlowe. As Marlowe's figuring it out, so do you. Yeah. But is it done well? That's the question. Mm, and it is a film from 1973, is it a noir, really? And does yeah. the color hurt it? And does it really hold up? I don't know. Are you at the end of your notes? I'm. Uh... Yeah, pretty much. The finish. So, Max. You. Do you remember when you first saw it? I saw this on videotape, I think, back in the 80s. Okay. And I no, I think I may have actually watched this on TV with my mother. Ah, so much of it was cut out. <laughs> yes, I think a lot of it was. But uh, I, I remember thinking, this is just wild. And it was I'd never seen Elliot Gould like this, and the ending just blew me away. You two, you and Terry yep, both. <laughs> yes, yeah, big big spoiler here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, can we say, shall we say it? I think we just did. <laughs> yeah. Basically, Marlowe, you know, Terry's just lying in his hammock like, yeah, I win, I got everything, and you're just a total loser. And Marlowe just looks at him and says, yeah, I even lost my cat. And then he shoots him. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's a perfect crime. He's already dead. Yeah. He can't be prosecuted. He's legally dead. Not be- to mention, you know, Eileen, who shows up or is about to find the body, what, what is she going to say? Yes, he murdered the guy who murdered. Nope, nope. It would have to, it would, everything would come out. And it's the only time we see Marlowe with a gun. Yep. It's the only time he does any. That's why this is so strange as a film noir kind of hard boiled detective thing. He never throws a punch. He never does. He shoots one person, and it's the last person you'd think. But uh, yeah, I I remember it, and I think it holds up. I think it's really good. It's very surprising. I do think it's film noir because it's a pretty bleak ending in a lot of ways. What about you? Had you ever seen this? Nope, never seen it. I actually got it confused title while title wise with the goodbye girl so i'm thinking that it was <laughs> a, a light-hearted comedy romp sort of thing <laughs> well, Chris Elliot gould why would i think yeah, it was a yeah. hard-boiled detective story so when it came up as one of the choices like really is that mm-hmm. gonna be a and then i started watching and i didn't know it was an altman film either and altman doesn't generally do comedy no <laughs> that's not tends not to be his thing and I, this is the beginning of a period in American film where things started, like you talked about the color being washed out. That was going to mm-hmm. be a thing through the 70s. The, yeah. um, that stark reality thing. So when he's in the jail in the beginning of the film, when he's been taken in for the being a part of the disappearance mm-hmm. of his friend Terry, 
the police station feels very real to me. Like if they oh, used yeah. a real police station, it would not surprise me at yeah, all. It's dirty, it's gritty, it's awful. I mean, it makes Barney Miller's, you know, pre- 13th precinct actually yeah. look a little bit clean, which is yeah. hard to do. Yep. But we're going to get films like The French Connection and um, Godfather and stuff all around this time period where the color starts getting washed out. Things get a lot more, quote unquote, realistic and gritty. Mm-hmm. And I think it's done with real panache. Uh, I like Altman. I have not yeah. seen that many of his films, but the ones I've seen I've really liked. I don't mind the people talking over people and the re- that realistic aspect. I love the way he uses the camera, and so that there's yeah. always something going. Sometimes it's a compare and contrast, like you can see one thing, but you're listening to another. I didn't see the ending coming at all. Yeah. In a way, he tricked us because he's like, oh, you're going to try and sit there and figure out where the twist is. Where's the twist? Well, the twist is there isn't. And I think... I'm glad that I didn't know it ahead of time, which is why Max warned us. Mm -hmm. But I still think if I watched it again, there's a lot of enjoyable performances. The dubbing is terrible. I hate the overdubbing. If you're not watching with headphones, you may not notice. But it's just, it's it's an artifact of the 70s. It's just most of the early Bond films are the same way. They're terrible. But I think Gould's performance is terrific in this. And I think it's a noir. And it's not something that's like, and I never saw this because it looked cheesy as hell. The man with Bogart's face. It's not something that's trying to be in the 40s, but shot in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's taking noir and it's really moving it up to that present day of 1973. It's still got all the trappings, but they don't feel anachronistic, right? It's mm-hmm. certainly got the um, lack of happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually really appreciate the character's the way he chooses to end the story, and that is he does not in any way, shape, or form try to stop Eileen as he passes her in the jeep. Nope, he doesn't Doesn't, even look at her. Doesn't try to get the girl. None of that. It's like, nope, I'm done. And my feeling is that in the end, above all else, Marlo's like, there has to be some justice in the world, and if this is how it happens, this is how it happens. And that's what he does. And that's about as noir as you can get, I think. So. Yeah, there's no law, there's no right or wrong, but there is justice. Yeah. Yeah. So we looked out, first two films of this series, and I think they've both been great. Absolutely. I think they've been terrific. But you know but what else is, is great? This is a really good... What? Your poll question for next week. Why, thank you. Oh, do you think I should read it again? Do you think it's that good? N- y- yes. <laughs> Lying. Lying. <laughs> Lying. Uh, Lying. So, so for next week, we'd like you to tell us, do you think film noir works better with black and white movies or does color just not make a difference? And you can answer this question as our new poll question answerer did, Mr. Dalton McGrath, by emailing us at us at max, maxmikemovies.com. Be like Dalton. You can also go to our website, maxmikemovies.com, and leave a comment. You can find us on Facebook. Under Max Mike Movies, we post uh, the question there. You can answer there. You can also scream it at a passing carrier pigeon, which would be remarkable as they're extinct, so don't scream at them if you see them. And, of course, you can find us in general on the, the podcast app of our choice, not yours. It's our choice. It's a hard, dark, black-and-white world out there. No, no it's not, and we app. don't what? have a choice because they pick us up all the time, so stop that. Okay. But... <laughs> We aren't even halfway into this, into Walk the Dark Street. So what street are we walking darkly next week, Mike? 
Well, I thought that we would walk the dark streets of Paris, somewhere far away, somewhere very noir. No. Oh. <laughs> to quote Marcel Marceau, no. <laughs> no, I, th <laughs> I thought that we would take a look at the place, the, the country <coughs> that the... Put the country out, please. Oh, the country where the word noir comes from in the first place, yeah? Ah, uh, Germany. No, that would... Nine? <laughs> oh, French, oh, is it? No, I would like to actually look at a foreign film, something we don't do nearly enough. Um, mostly uh, I don't like foreign films. They're not made in America. Funny that. <laughs> 258 <laughs> previous episodes. No, I would like to look at a French noir film that is not mm. from the period. We're still in the new noir, although new in this point is well, 40, 40 some odd years ago. Yeah. But I would like to see a film. It's about a young man and an opera singer called Diva. Ah. It is uh, very much considered a French or a noir film, but it is France. It is from Francais. From Fran no, it's from France. Francois. Whatever. Well, it is French. The, Just listen to me. Have a fry. A lot, sit down. Have coffee. There's a lot of cheese in it, I'm guessing. No, but it is uh, how you say. It looks at life. It uh, looks at the darker things. It is... Uh, it is like Savoir Faire. It is everywhere. So Does be it, everywhere with surrender us. surrender to us immediately? <laughs> be with us next week with some cheese and some wine and listen to us talking about Diva. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench.